coming to the edge, running on the water, coming through the fog, your sons and daughters. And this is my 80s-ography. Welcome to 80sography and another My 80sography, this time with the multi-talented musician, producer and string and horn arranger Rob Mounsey. So much great music and great artists covered here, so let's just crack on with it. Part 1 of the interview with Rob Mounsey. This is the start of the interview. Just listen to Dig. Flying oh. Monkey Orchestra, which is, which is really wow. good pre-interview music, actually, because it really kind of sets you in the right kind of relaxed, kind of zen mood <laughs> for an interview. So well, how, come, how come that's not on iTunes? I to listen to it on YouTube. Do you know why it's not on iTunes? Uh, it should be on iTunes. Yeah, the, the 90s oh. albums are, but that particular one isn't. Oh, Back in the Pool and Mango Theory. Yes. Are there? Yeah, they're oh. both on there. You know, well, you know, it was, it was on a different label. I, the other records were self-released and i was able to make sure that they were distributed that way but um this was on another label that um i had tremendous problems with and uh, i think it's out of been out of business for a while so i i don't know what's going on with that So, so basically, um, to start off with, how did you get in the business? And basically, where were you approaching the 80s in your career? I was uh, in school at, at Berklee College of Music in Boston uh, until 75. Uh, graduated from there in 75. And I was kicking around Boston um, doing uh, not much of anything. I was not terribly ambitious. Uh, I was just happy to be able to be doing music and, and make some kind of very modest living at it. So I was uh, playing for local singers, and I worked as a copyist, and I did all kinds of stuff. But I uh, was working with a singer who got signed to RCA Records in New York. 
guy by the name of Ralph Graham. And uh, RCA enlisted the marvelous Leon Pendarvis to produce that record. And Pendarvis came up to Worcester, Massachusetts to hear the singer and, and the band. And he told him, uh, sure, I'd like to produce your record. Uh, don't bring the band. We'll use New York studio guys. And he had a second thought and he said, you know, if you if you want, you can bring that kid on the end. I was the kid on the end playing a Mellotron and an Arp Odyssey, which didn't even really belong to me. What terrible instruments they were. And uh, I don't know what it was that he saw, but I I came down to New York in the summer of 76 to work on that album. I kind of hit it off with Pendarvis, who was really uh, to whom I really owe everything. invited me to move to New York. He said, you know, you should you should move to New York. I'll, I'll book you on my dates uh, as kind of a second keyboardist. And uh, that's what I did. So I, I moved down at the end of 76. I was 23, 24 years old. And I, I was fairly busy doing studio work by 77 sometime. So it really started then. So what felt like your first real big break? Like what felt like you actually in the big time? Well, it was probably that record itself yeah. because I, I came down on the uh, Amtrak train and uh, worked at RCA Studios and I met uh, Steve Gadd and Will Lee and the Breckers, all these fabulous and famous uh, studio players who later became friends and, and colleagues. And um, uh, Pendarvis uh, invited me to write some string arrangements and horn arrangements and so forth. So I did some of that and got to conduct those uh, fantastic New York studio musicians i'd say that was the break right there even before i before i moved down bear in mind i was 23 years old i was just out of school you know was very very fortunate to to get involved at that time because the recording industry was such a vibrant industry then you know there was there was so much work for musicians you're 23 and you're conducting these these season session musicians was there a struggle getting them to take you seriously being a 23 year old kid apparently not (laughs) <laughs> I don't. I don't remember. I don't remember any struggles. I mean, I had, you know, I had written the stuff, and I could uh, indicate how to do it, and um, that's good enough. If you have it, you and they see it, then there's not an issue. I mean, my, you know, my black musician friends used to laugh at me a little bit because I was, you know, this skinny little white kid with glasses. They said, Penn Darvis would say it. I would sit down at the piano and I'd play this greasy, funky kind of, you know, R and B stuff. And people would look at me like, what the heck is this? <laughs> Somehow I always, I always just felt that stuff. So that was, that was how it started. And I was just, it was, it was very, very fortunate timing because after I moved here in 76 and got involved with various people that there was, for example, there were a lot of disco records. It was like the disco craze was just happening. And that meant that at that time, that meant that there were hundreds and hundreds of records being made and people were, were making money making records and it had to be done by humans because there were really no usable computers even there was no sampling there was no midi there was no digital recording so uh, it had to be done by real human beings you know people had to walk into a big room and they sat down and there were music stands and there was paper and they would play in real time and 
you know, it was it was real what you were hearing. Yeah, it's somewhat it missing nowadays. Yeah, it's, yeah, now it's completely completely different thing. But that didn't really start being a, a noticeable change until probably the mid '80s when technology radically changed music production. Sure. It, yeah, it wasn't true at the end of the '70s. It was probably hadn't significantly changed until the and you know since the '50s. So it was a, okay. a really different world. Sure. Okay. One thing I want to ask you about pre-80s are the film soundtracks. It says The Warriors, The Wiz, and Animal House. Now, I like on your website, you put open brackets. That's right, comma, Animal House, close brackets. <laughs> like that. <laughs> that was good. So um, The Wiz is where you, I assume where you first got in contact with Diana Ross, working with Diana Ross. Uh, not really. I think I had been working with Ashford and Simpson, old friends of mine, wonderful people. Um, and Nick, Nick Ashford and Valerie Simpson had kind of a, a great little machine that they, uh, that, that they had, that they did. They, they were the machine. I mean, they, they would write all of the songs and produce the record. Valerie uh, is a wonderful pianist. She would play. Um, they would do the rhythm tracks. And I, and I did lots of orchestrations for them, uh, for their own records and for, for Diana Ross and for uh, Gladys Knight and uh, a lot of other people. So I think I was, I think I had done that before. Somehow I got called for The Wiz with Quincy. Now, Quincy Jones, that's, that's where I, I met him. And he came to New York to do that soundtrack. Uh, I remember when the album came out and there was a list of players. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's, it's basically almost every studio musician in New York played, played on that album. If, if, you didn't, if you didn't play on it, you, you probably weren't on the scene. There were so many. So I did a little bit of that and met Quincy at that time. Sure. And then Animal House, you arranged a version of Louie Louie for John Belushi. Yeah. I was working with a guy named Kenny Vance. who used to be with a band called Jay and the Americans. Uh, I don't know where he is now. But um, yeah, I remember working a lot with, with Stephen Bishop on that. And I also you know, worked on the, the title song. And those, those cavemen who sing Animal House as a background thing, that's... That's me and Kenny Vance and Philip Namenworth. It's the three of us singing like, you know, apes. Yes, and the funny thing is, I, I get I get royalty checks for that for that movie. You know, like it's something like eight dollars a year or something. But for royalty checks, you literally get a check. Yeah. Yes, from from Screen Actors Guild because oh okay, or, or maybe it's from AFTRA. I don't remember. It's one of those. It's very very small. <laughs> what's what's the smallest check that you've cashed? Um, the smallest check I ever received and deposited was for zero dollars and zero cents. Are you still deposited? That's good. I a did symbolic deposit. thing. Yes. I, yes. Um, I got two checks from the same source. I can't remember where it was from. Same, same source on the same day. Two checks in two separate envelopes, <laughs> two separate postages. One was for nine cents and the other was for zero. An actual check made out for zero mailed to me. See, I would have framed that one. So, yeah, well, it's, it was, it's interesting because the postage is infinitely more than the check, <laughs> yeah. actually. I don't remember what it was for, what record it was for. What, no, I, uh, I can't remember. I can't remember. I mean, I'm not sure that I, that I knew. I mean, you get little checks like that, and it's not really clear what it's for. 
<laughs> so it's this interesting session. How many checks do you reckon you get a year for all the different sessions you've done, all the different songs you've worked well, on? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, I couldn't know. I mean, mo- you know, most of it is from ASCAP for stuff that I actually wrote. Yeah. So um, that's different. I worked on the, the HBO series Sex in the City, and I, I was actually an, an actor on one of those, had a tiny, tiny part as a musician in a club. Oh, really? Which episode was that? Because I've, I've actually seen every episode of Sex oh, in the City. It's called, it's called Defining Moments. Defining it, Moments. I'm running that down. Yeah, it's where the boyfriend was was the bass player in the club. I forget that actor's name. She uh, uh, she had a boyfriend who was a bass player in the jazz club, and the guy was completely ADD or something. I think if you blink, you miss me. But Okay, um, I will look out for that. So you're in the club or something performing? Yes, yeah. Yes, I will look out for that. So John Belushi, so how many takes did it take to get that? Uh, oh, I don't then? remember. It was so long ago, but uh, I, I can't remember. This is, we're talking about, uh, you know, almost 40 years ago now. Oh, that's over 40, isn't that? 78, so it's been like more like nearly 45 years. Yeah, maybe over 40 years, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So, so no specific memories of John at all about working with him? No, or... you see, he was such a wild man. Yeah. That's all I really remember, and I think there was some pretty serious substance abuse going on at that time, uh, which, which killed him not long after that. Okay. But I, re- I remember working a little more closely with Stephen Bishop, who wrote those songs and so forth. And uh, I like Stephen a lot and also met um, Princess Leia, you know. Oh, Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher, who was yes. really very nice. How lovely. Yeah, she came in one time. I was just noodling on the piano and she came and sat down and she said, "I, you know, I would really like to play the piano again. I used to as a kid. And I said, well, it's never too late. You should take it up again. And uh, Stephen had, was carrying a serious torch for Carrie. And it was, I'm afraid it was, it appeared to be unrequited. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, think every, I think everybody did in 78, didn't they? Oh, like, that may be. Every yeah. year since, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. Sure. Yeah, she had, she, he had a major crush on her, and she was not giving him the time of day. All right. <laughs> I felt Because I like Stephen a lot. He's a great yeah. guy, a very funny guy. Okay, let's head into the 80s, in 1980, and you worked right. on Karen Carpenter's only solo yeah. album that was yes. never released until, what, 1996? Much, yes, much later, went on the shelf that long. And that was when I was first uh, starting to work with Phil Ramone, was one of the first things I did with Phil. Not the first, though. I can't remember what the first might have been, but Karen really was great. The musicians really, really liked her. And um, she was very, very smart and a real musician, also a very good drummer. Not everybody knows that. 
it was musically controversial, that record. Her, her brother really didn't like it, her brother Richard. Did you know that at the time that he wasn't keen on uh, being... Well, we 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 heard about it as it was going on, and and after it was finished, we knew that he was kind of torpedoing it with A and M records, and and um, he just he didn't like it. He didn't like not being part of it. I think, but he, yeah, you know, he also he didn't approve of um, the whole approach. And and Karen was trying to kind of branch out and do something fresh for herself, and she didn't uh, she didn't sing a lot of stuff in her trademark very very deep altissimo register that um people love but you know she was she was just trying to do something different so that record went on the shelf for a long long time more than a decade i guess right well you told me the dates 1996 yeah, so what 16 years yeah yeah there's a song on it that you wrote guess i lost my head so when when yes. you are working with an artist Mm-hmm. What what is the procedure for submitting songs? Is it a case the artist says to you, "Do you have any songs going? Do you I got uh, something about my back pocket you might be interested in? You just play it in the studio." Was, no, it was it was Phil. Uh, you know, I, Phil had heard the song at some point. I had played it for Phil, and uh, Phil kind of sold it to Karen, and Karen liked it. I didn't uh, I didn't promote it at all. <laughs> uh, it was just a lucky uh, break. Another one. She wrote. She rewrote the first two lines. She had to rewrite the first two lines because, of course, I always conceived of it as a man singing to a woman, feeling that he'd made a fool out of himself. But she, she of course, was a woman who, you know, you, you would assume was singing it to a man. So she had to change that. I had a line about, um, uh, "I was only watching the flower in your hair." Came from a real life experience, actually. <laughs> um, she had to change it because the man would not be wearing a flower in his hair. So she had, I was only trying to memorize you there, which was pretty good, actually. Mm, yeah. I really don't mean to stare. I was only trying to memorize you. That was, I thought that was pretty clever. I really don't mean to stare. I was only trying to memorize you there. You know I meant no harm. It's just that the starlight in your eyes lyric shame she didn't like write more songs herself yeah i don't know if she did a lot of her own writing i don't i'm not aware of it but if you know naturally i was thrilled that she did the song and that's one of the few i mean i've never been that much of a songwriter that was one of the few times that i had a song covered by anyone actually yeah and then it wasn't released for 16 years <laughs> right right yeah so there's a couple of beginnings of, of future relationships there on that album she covers still crazy after all these years Mm-hmm. Paul Simon's song, and obviously that right. Simon and Garfunkel and Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel are going to be mm-hmm. large. Actually, you'd already worked with Art Garfunkel before then, hadn't you, in 79? I did a record with Artie called Fate for Breakfast. Yeah. I lived out in L.A. I stayed at the at the Hyatt on Sunset 
in Hollywood. They call it the Riot House, right down the street from the where uh, John Belushi died. And I lived there for a couple months and made that record with uh, Louis Shelton. That was quite an experience. Yeah, so I had, had gotten to know Art. I, I don't remember when I first met Paul because I worked with him on the Hearts and Bones album before Graceland. And then I did a lot of stuff on Graceland. Yeah, we will we'll definitely get to that. The other <laughs> first contact is with um, the Billy Joel band. We did yes. a lot of the, um, for the, the Karen Carpenter. So yeah. obviously, you uh, did you establish a rapport at that time that was then beneficial for future recordings with Billy? Or was it a case of just you just ran into them again at a later date? Well, it was it was... I got to know those guys a little bit, but it was, you know, it was really Phil. You know, I did get to know those guys in his band, but it was Phil that got me connected with Billy. You know, Phil Phil uh, hired me to work on Billy's stuff. And I always, you know, I, I like Billy a lot. I have a lot of, lot of respect for him as a songwriter. I think he's one of the great songwriters. It's funny how polarizing he can be with people, that some people really love him and some really don't like him. And I, I don't quite understand that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's improved over the years. I think definitely in the eighties that was the case. But I think a lot of people, I think I think he's kind of pretty much. Do people still dislike him now? I just get the feeling he's kind of more universally. Well, I run into I I see things online and so forth where some people that really don't like it. But I mean, I was never that um, that interested in the big hits. He had so many big hits, but yeah, there are so many wonderful um, kind of sleeper cuts on those albums. They're really so good. Yeah, and we'll get to the Nine Curtain later, which is just chock full of them. I think it's an absolute masterpiece yeah. album. There's a wonderful song at the end of the record called Where's the Orchestra, which I, I just love that thing. It's it's so strange and it's so good. And I remember at, at Phil's uh, memorial service, Billy was talking about that and thinking maybe he shouldn't do it because it was so peculiar. And, and Phil told him he had to do it, that it was great. So I was wrong. At least I understand All the innuendo and the irony And I appreciate The roles the actors played The point the author made And after the closing It's so good. There's so many good, so many good songs that are not necessarily the hits. They're the album cuts. Yeah, where's the orchestra? It's a beautiful song. It took me years to realize that the motif for Allentown comes in at the end. It kind of repeats. It comes full circle. Uh-huh. Okay. It took me years. I'd listened to the album hundreds of times. And oh yeah, it's yeah. Allentown at the end, isn't it? Yeah. Scandinavian yeah. Skies is a yes, great Yes, that's the one you're correct. Well, we will get to that in 82, because yeah. I, I, I do love that album. But in 1980, there's this little band called Steely Dan that you worked on, yes. Gaucho. Uh, is you that on, early? Yeah, it I, came out in 80, yeah. So you worked on a bunch of tracks there. So they have, they have this reputation from being very precise and exacting. Is yes. that reputation well-deserved? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> You've probably heard the stories and read the stories and so forth. You know, and yet with all those stories, I never knew any musicians to really be unhappy 
to be part of it because everybody just loved the music. I mean, it was it was very, very challenging. It would be very challenging to get, try to give them exactly what they wanted. But everyone loved the music, loved the songs, and were happy, you know, everyone was happy to be there, be part of it. Of course, we really had no idea we were working on these iconic albums people would still be talking about 30 and 40 years later. I certainly didn't know that. But I was really first aware of them with the Asia record, which I think is a fantastic album. Uh, and it's, it's really one of my favorites. And that, that predates my meeting them and being involved with them at all. I started with Gaucho and then went on to Nightfly with, with Donald. Yes. So when, when you have a band that are that exact, do you still have freedom? Like you did the horn arrangements and you also played, played keyboards yeah. on, on the record. Do you still have yeah. freedom in what you can do? Was it like... Yeah. You do? Yes. Because of the parts you play, you can play. Uh, yes, some. For example, you know, the, the, the track on Gaucho, the title track, was something that we, we played for 12 hours. There's a group of five of us. We played from 12 noon to 12 midnight one day. And somehow we're not getting them what they wanted. And they, they actually went home at midnight. And f- four of us stayed until four in the morning doing seven more <laughs> complete takes to a click and you're i'm sure you're familiar with the song it's yeah it's very it's very long it's got all these different sections it's got a long Mm -hmm. instrumental section in the middle it's almost like another song in there and most of that piano part is is written out note for note by donald most of it but you know there were some little decorations that i that i put in there that survived At 7 a.m., everyone was exhausted. Everyone went home, and uh, Jeff Percaro went to the airport and got on a flight to Oklahoma City to do a concert with Toto. There's a little bit of trivia. <laughs> and uh, a few days later, they, they actually called us, and they said, we want to thank you for staying, and we think there might be something here that we can use. Oh, wow. <laughs> High praise. Yes, and, and they cut the two-inch multi-track tape at least 20 times and edited together a master take and then they erased everything but the drums oh man because all of that was only to get a drum pass and i assume you didn't know that at the time we we did not know uh, we came back and re-overdubbed our parts but it i just found out last year at another brief interview with a woman who writes for drummer magazine who has written a book about jeff percaro and she told me Jeff knew that. <laughs> he, was the, he was the only one who knew that the rest of us didn't know that what we were just window dressing at the moment. It was all to get a perfect take from, from Jeff, which is astounding to me because Jeff was such a such an inhumanly accurate player. I was going to say, did, did you notice anything on the 12th hour that was any different in this drum part to the first no. hour? No. No. So that- I, don't, <laughs> I don't think that, see, I don't think that any of us would have even distinguished those takes. Yeah. <coughs> so how did we, you feel when you found out that that was the case? That was the reason for it all? Well, you know, astounded. 
on the other hand, we came back and we read, you know, I came back and, and uh, I took, it took five hours to redo the piano part and another three hours to redo the uh, uh, Rhodes part. So that was a, a long day, but at least we did it. And <laughs> at least it stayed on tape, yeah. Yeah, and it's and it's there, and it's on the record. And uh, and Steve Kahn, my buddy Steve Kahn, came back and and recut all the guitar stuff. I think that took him three or four hours. Is it true and, that Donald Fagan did two hundred and fifty mixes of one song and received like a fake platinum disc for it? Did you hear about that? No, no, two hundred and fifty mixes. Yeah, and then he went back and did another twenty four mixes. Apparently, wow, he still wasn't happy with it. Does that sound feasible? Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I mean. It's difficult to understand. Once you've passed about <laughs> 20 or 30 mixes of one song, it's hard to understand what you're listening for. Yeah. Going on. Well, yeah, it's hard to understand going on. I mean, yeah. one of those is definitely the best one. And they're probably all good. Yes. So, you know, I mean, they're just different. I don't know. It's a little, little hard to understand. I think I suspect at some point that their process began to make them very unhappy. Yeah, I can't think why. Yeah, I think they, they just, they got into, they realized that they could continue to make stuff better and more perfect or more nearly perfect. And so they they couldn't stop. I mean, I think it, it got to be sort of a shared OCD Kind yeah, of yeah, like a form of insanity. Thing. I mean, there's a danger of being too clinical with music, isn't there? Because you need those kind of rough well, edges sometimes, don't you? Because uh, that's what's, what's wrong with modern music today is that you can make it perfect. And by making maybe. it perfect, you miss those kind of happy maybe. accidents that, like the Beatles, yeah. most of their best records are from accidents in the studio. It's like, oh, what was that? That went wrong. Yeah. Oh, let's do that again. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a very wide conversation. Yes. You know, yes. and, and, and uh, we could go on and on about it. But yeah, I do believe that you have to be open to, to accidents and you have to be open to unexpected stuff that you discover that you like and you didn't know you would like it. And maybe you never quite understand why you do like it. You know, I think they were they would be open to things. They just couldn't stop polishing it. Yeah. You know, yeah. They, they would discover great stuff. I mean, and and on the other hand, the fact that that stuff is so uh, what you would call lapidary, you know, it's like a polished gem mm. that you've been polishing for years. We we didn't know if Gaucho would ever come out. I mean, the musicians, <laughs> musicians were amazed that it was actually finally released. It, it seemed like it would never happen. There there may be something about that that quality that makes it really stand up because if I listen to Gaucho today. To me, it doesn't really sound dated. Yeah, yeah. It really stands up. It's still, you know, almost 40 years later, it still, to me, it still sounds modern somehow. It doesn't sound old fashioned. I certainly can't say that about a lot of the music from that era. Yeah, that's I, true. Yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't say it about Karen Carpenter's record when it came out years later. It, to me, it, a lot of things about it sounded very dated stylistically. Now, you know, we we can have a a fondness for those dated styles, you know, and that happens all the time. But it, it didn't sound modern to me when it came out. It sounded it sounded dated to me. Those Steely Dan records never sound dated to me. So, you know, there's something about that process in spite of the fact that it it drove some people almost mad. Yeah, yeah. There there is an upside to meticulousness, isn't there? They can't the Stanley Kubrick or pop, aren't they? Just kind of like that level of detail. Whatever they were doing, I'm, I'm yeah. 
you know, I'm glad that they did it because now we have these great records to listen to. Okay, so still in 1980, mm-hmm. first of all, massive hits. You had a massive row of hits you involved in the 80s. The oh, really? first one is a really <laughs> uh, fame, Irina Cara. You were involved in that, yes? You played on that? I just, I only played. It, that's, that's, uh, uh, Leon Pendarvis deserves the credit for that. I believe that Leon was the, the producer and the arranger and all of that. But I, you can hear me playing with him. So when you're playing a keyboard part in a song like that, uh-huh. is it already defined what the part is? Is it like we need a keyboard part? What can you come uh, up with? Probably not terribly defined. No. I, I mean, I remember that as being more of a, of a regular rhythm section date where we were mostly looking at chords and finding parts. And oh, I miss, I miss those sessions so much. <laughs> There's nothing like sitting down with a really good rhythm section and just sorting out what you're going to do, especially the, you know, if you're the keyboard player, you, you sort stuff out with the guitars, you know, is that so you don't get in each other's way or is it just to like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so that you, so that you complement each other and so that you support each other. There's a lot of stuff like, okay, in the chorus, I'm going to mainly play in the second half of the bar and you play more in the first half of the bar. You find those patterns. And when the rhythm section comes together and the uh, everyone's playing to make the ensemble sound good, they're not playing to make themselves sound good. And it becomes this this one big animal. You really, you really don't know where you leave off and the next guy begins, you know? Yeah. And it's such a great, great feeling. Everybody feels it when it suddenly gels. It's like the air is electric. so lucky to play with all of these great drummers and bass players really the best there are learned so much from playing with them so in this instance was it all played as live then you were playing with the other yes i think it was yeah i think it's it's a live rhythm section thing and then there are some synthesizers and vocals and stuff i didn't do the synthesizers a a little bit later on i became one of those synth guys (laughs) yeah you know had had a you know a bunch of cases and cartage guys would schlep these big cases around and we'd go to different studios and I would make little diddly little noises on people's records all day in the, in the control room. So I, you know, that was a part of what I did at some point. The first synthesizer I ever bought was in 1977. It was an ARP 2600. And, you know, that stuff was pretty, pretty difficult to use at that time. So yeah, Fame was one of those records. I think it was just really a band, mostly. And with the with you have been doing just the backing track, the vocals wouldn't have been part of that at the same time, I assume. No, no, 
Because I know that Luther Vandross did the backing, but I didn't realize until like today that he did oh. the backing vocals. Okay. He worked out the arrangement. He did the remember, remember. That was his. Oh, name. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I never knew that. That it was, it was Luther yeah. Vandross. Oh, okay. Yeah, he did a lot of he did a lot of background sessions. I used to do uh, TV commercials with him. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was just a working singer before he had his hits. And I assume that Irene was there singing with the band on the rhythm section date, but I don't remember. When did you when did you get a sense that this is going to be a big hit? Because it wasn't a hit in the UK until 1982 when the, the Kids from oh. Fame TV series came out because that was huge in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge. And it became this massive number one single, one of the biggest hits of the year. Yeah. But in America, know. it was a big hit in 1980. Did you get a sense that this was taking off, that it's becoming a big thing? I don't think that I would have guessed that until it happened. Uh, it was the movie, right? It was the it Yeah, was, the movie yeah. in 1980 is a TV series yeah. in 82. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess I was aware when the movie came out that the movie was a hit. So, no, I mean, you know, at, at, during this period, the, the studio musicians were doing five and six dates a day, five days a week, and just running from one to another. Yeah. And it was great, great fun for everyone. We, we all, like, we all miss it so much. It, nothing like that exists anymore. But we really weren't aware of, you know, it's, I, I found some of my old date books from those days, and it just says things like, you know, there's a soft drink commercial, there's a beer commercial, there's a Steely Dan session, <laughs> there's a, uh, you know, a car commercial, uh, there's a session for some new, newly signed artist that no one ever heard of again. And then there's uh, Daryl Hall and John Oates. And then there's uh, Steely Dan again. And then there's another soft drink commercial. But know, was the Steely Dan written in a different color or underlined or something? You put a star by it to say like, you know, Steely <laughs> Dan, you know, commercial, a, commercial, Steely Dan. No, no, I just <laughs> yeah, put a star by everything. What really shocks me in retrospect is things like, um, you know, I, I did the. Uh, I remember doing the session for the horn, the horn arrangement for Babylon Sisters, and I didn't save the score. I don't. I walked away from it. I didn't save the scores for any of the uh, horn arrangements that I did for those records. Time out of mind, uh, Ruby Baby. Do you normally keep the scores then? Do you normally? I do now. <laughs> you didn't. Yes. I do now. I mean, it used, I... To, oh, it used to always be pencil on paper. Yeah. And now it's it tends to be software, and I have the files. And now I keep everything. But of course, you know, once in a while, I talk to students or something, and, and they say, "Do you have those scores? Can we see the score to Babylon Sisters?" And I have to say, "I don't. I didn't keep it." Do you know if anybody has them? Do you know if not seen them pop up on eBay Probably or anything? Not. It's possible that maybe uh, Gary Katz picked those up. Probably not, though. They're just gone. Oh, it's a shame, isn't it? That's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's rock history, even, isn't it? I don't even remember what the uh, exactly what the instrumentation is on Babylon Sisters because it was very unusual. It was a big group with it had alto flutes and a flugelhorn and the two famous bass clarinets. I remember who they were: it was George Marge and Wally Kane playing the bass clarinets in in fifths. But I don't. I, I didn't save the music, and we didn't know. Yeah. I mean, it's just another session, yeah. The session was over. You're due on another one somewhere. Run. Yeah. You know, say, yeah. say thank you. Hope to see you on another one and get out of there. This might be quite quite a vague question to answer, but how, on, on, on average, how long would like a horn arrangement take to write or a string arrangement? I mean, obviously it's going to vary from 
project to project. Yeah, but. it depends. For for me, maybe um, just to to write it down, maybe uh, an hour, an hour or two. Depends on how complicated it got. But of course, the shortest, quickest horn arrangement of all time is the horn arrangement on uh, "You Can Call Me Out." Wow, and that's for the most Great famous man. of all, right? Right, which millions and millions of people have heard, and they left the credit off the album. Thanks a lot. But yeah, we'll, no. get, we'll get to that. I have a few questions yeah. about You Can Call Me Out, actually. And a, few, yeah. a, a quote I want to give you as well. To, um, okay, we can, we'll get we can to that. that if you want. But, yeah, you know, we'll get to that. It's basically two bars over and over again. Yeah. With a couple variations. But, um, you mentioned, did you actually work with Hall & Oates? Because you mentioned them, because I'm not seeing them in the credits. Yes. Yeah. What do yeah. you work on? There's not There's credited an anyone. Album, there was an album called Marigold Sky. Oh, okay. It was a terribly big uh, success commercially i don't know there's some very nice stuff on it i just did some horn arrangements i uh, no, on uh, string arrangements string arrangements on a couple of things three or four things there's a very nice song called throw the roses away that i did with them i keep meaning to try to dig that up nice song don't need them anymore cause they just make you cry if you let it go, let it go, let it go, babe. You get some peace of mind. Only lonely for now. But you come back, back from the pain. Oh, I don't know if I'll ever find someone like Those guys are great. I've seen John Oates in recent years a couple times. A great guy. Um, don't really know Daryl. I love Daryl's singing. Always loved it. Great singer. Yeah, it's an amazing voice. Yeah. 1981. Okay, let's go into 1981. Got a quick question about Ricky Lee Jones, oh, the Pirates you've album. This, you've got this. You've got this broken down by year. I can't believe it. Oh yeah, that's how I get through it. It's just I. <laughs> Man, you've done so much. The, the best mm. part of doing this is actually, apart from the interview, is the research. You, you <laughs> discover this music you didn't know. And you, you're, yes, and you're going you're gonna to probably ask me about things I don't even remember. Well, we'll find out. And if you say I have yeah. no idea, I can just cut it out. Yeah, and we'll go to the next yes. thing. But I have a quick question about a song on, on Pirates by Ricky yes. Lee Jones called We Belong Together. Did you work on that song? Do you remember this one? Is that the one? You know, it's weird that you should ask this because I was just working with Ricky Lee. Oh, okay. Uh, three weeks ago, working on a new project with Russ Teitelman, same producer. Is he still and, going? Is he? How old is Russ oh, Teitelman yeah. now? He's a bit older than me. He's around. Uh, he's in his mid seventies, I think. Yeah, I'd love to speak to him sometime. Yes, he's, he's he's an old friend. I've done a lot with him. We did Brian Wilson together, and yeah, Stevie Winwood, and a lot of things. Excellent. Okay. Uh, yes. I, well, I don't know if that was the song. It was an odd. It was an odd session because actually. It was with Lenny Warnaker and Russ Teitelman, and they hired they hired Donald Fagan and me together as a team, which was very strange. Yeah. <laughs> and I brought all my gear, 
most notably my Oberheim 4 voice, which I think is, I'm, I'm sure is on that album. I guess the idea was I was going to program sounds and Donald was going to play some nice notes and that was what was going to happen. But it was very difficult. We did get through it. It worked. And I, I know the stuff is on the album, but I don't know if it's that song. Oh, okay. And Russ keeps telling me to listen to that song again. And I'm and now I'm embarrassed because I'm wondering if it's because if it's because I played on it. Okay, let's go on to another massive hit from 1981, Why Do Fools Fall in Love, Ross. Oh, yeah. Because you played yeah. the piano, I think. Piano and synth, maybe? Or just the piano part? It was really just piano, and I, piano. I, kind of, I sort of led the rhythm section and sort of arranged the rhythm section and played. And uh, it felt great. I remember doing that and just feeling like everybody was so into it. And it just, it grooved. It just had a great... It had a great rhythmic feeling to it. Everybody was just, they felt like this was going to be a great thing. It was another arranger that did the orchestra arrangements. I can't remember his name, but I did the uh, the rhythm section stuff and played, yeah. Why do fools fall in love? Why do birds sing so gay? I love us away the break of day. Why did they fall in love? really just a infectious groove kind of infectious shuffling groove yeah i mean as a kid of the 80s i see that as the original version because obviously that's the first version i would yeah. have heard yeah right 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 yeah frankie lyman and the teenage yeah 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 great original as well so um again was there freedom in the part you played and how you played the piano part or was it yeah, i guess so that was really just kind of a groove it was really yeah. just a band and a and a groove there was very little dictated to anyone. I guess when I was very young and I was starting out, I realized I could notate details for the rhythm section and the, the musicians that I was working with were so good and were such good readers that they generally could read those parts and kind of uh, make them sound like they were natural, make them sound like they were parts that they thought up. But, you know, as time went on, I realized it's what, what you really want to do is leave those people room to contribute what they contribute, contribute their special stuff, and not not dictate too much to them. Although, you know, sometimes, some details. So is that, is that a tricky balance when you're doing arrangements then? You want to have a structure to the song, but at the same time the yeah. freedom to express. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. The, and you find a different balance all the time. But if it's, if it's nothing but slash marks and chord symbols, it can be a little too amorphous. They will count on you to show a little leadership. 
Yeah. I wouldn't say do this here and do that there, but it's nice to have a very light hand with that stuff. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, okay. uh, and, and allow them space. Most important thing is number every single bar. Every single measure has a, has a number. And there are rehearsal letters that show where the sections of the song are, where the, where the sections are, and uh, so that they don't have difficulty navigating. Right, okay. So once they've got that structure in place, then they can play within that structure then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Usually, yeah. I mean, there are places where you want to dictate something, but not too much. Yeah, it's a fascinating world, actually, the, the world of the arrangements. Yeah. Then we got the Simon and Garfunkel concert in Central Park, which is yes. a, a massive deal. Yes. So I assume you got that through working with Phil. Art Garfunkel. No, no, through Phil Ramone. Phil Ramone again. Wow. Phil Ramone made that whole thing happen. In what sense? He made it all happen. I mean, I think really it was his idea. The whole thing. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I, I know that the city of New York helped and they got a lot of help from Ed Koch and the city, but it was it was Phil's production and Phil really ran it. Yeah, that was quite an amazing evening. I, I had never played synthesizers live before. Really? That was the first time for, what, 10,000 yeah. people? Yes, and there were, yeah, yeah, five, yeah, half a million people. Half a there. million people, was it? Wow. Yeah. And my, my rig, my, my setup was a sort of like a big card table and one Prophet 5 with a couple of stomp boxes, like two boss chorus boxes, like guitar stomp boxes after this Prophet. And it, you know, programmed in 10 or 12 of my own custom little sounds. And that was it, that was my whole setup. <laughs> I'd like to introduce the, like to introduce the uh, players in the band. Guitarists are David Brown, Pete Carr. Anthony Jackson, Maiden Bass. Rob Lanzi's on synthesizer. So going back to the rehearsals. Um, people, people still get excited about that. I mean, they, they still show it on TV. And yeah, like, yeah. Well, I was watching it last night. It's just, just all my wife's my wife's relatives all call. I saw him Rob up there. <laughs> saw him again last night. <laughs> when was the last time you watched it all the way through? I don't know that I've ever watched it all the You've way. You've never through. watched it all the way through, really? I'm not sure. Every not time sure people come over for like a barbecue, you don't have it on in the background and like really? randomly put yourself out every 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I would. I would do I'm, that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, un, I'm unrecognizable. I was about uh, 28 years old, I think. Gosh, man. So there's a quote from Paul Simon that rehearsals were miserable. Artie and I fought all the time. Is that yes. accurate? It was true. Yes. yes, it was true. And was it passive aggressive or were they literally just like bickering at each other while they were trying to work out what they were going to sing and how they're going to sing it? Something in between. It was bickering. It was not, yeah, it was not like screaming and yelling warfare. No, they were not getting along at all. But I remember this, we had like, I think we had one week of rehearsal, one full week of rehearsal for it. But every day, all day, we played Mrs. Robinson. I don't know why. <laughs> I still don't know why. Just that one song. Yeah, over and over and over and over. And like Paul would think of something. Oh, let's try it like this. Let's try it like this. What if we added this? What if we took this out? Like the band was saying, um, Paul, don't we have a lot of other songs? See, <laughs> so Mrs. Robinson for 90 minutes. Yeah. It was Mrs. Robinson like every day, all day. I guess, really? eventually, we, I guess eventually we got to the other songs. We like to know a little bit about you for our fight. 
to help you learn to help yourself. Look around you, all you see are sympathetic eyes. Stroll around the grounds until you feel at home. And here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. Jesus loves you more than you will know. Whoa, whoa, whoa. God bless you, please, Mrs. Robinson. Heaven knows a place for those who pray. What I really remember about that concert is that lunatic who ran up on yes, stage. Yes, during the last great Johnny, the yeah. late great Johnny Ace, yeah. And I was really close to that. I mean, I was on a riser up above Paul to his left. That was kind of stage left. Yeah. So I, I got to see the whole thing. And it was I was very impressed because the guy ran up, Paul backed off from the mic, and looked very alarmed. I heard the guy say, Paul, I got to talk to you. I got to talk to you. I got to talk to you. And then the stagehands came, grabbed him, and turned him upside down and dragged him off stage. On a cold December evening, I was walking through the Christmas tide when a stranger came up and asked me if I had heard John Lennon had died. And the two of us went to this bar And we stayed to close the play And every song we played And Paul's left hand never left the chord shape <laughs> on the neck of his guitar. That's a professional. Yeah. That's professional. His right hand dropped. His left hand did not leave the neck. Like the chord shape stayed yeah. there. And then he went back and he... His voice was a little shaky. He was really shaken up and he finished that line and he finished the song. You know, I think the following year or a year later, I was in the studio with him for something. And we listened, we listened to that song. We listened to the recorded version. When that line came where the guy ran up, he looked at me and I looked at him and he's, he said, whenever that line comes, I see that guy running right at me, which I, it's like a PTSD kind of well, thing. Well, when you think what the song's about as well and yes. where that, happened so close yeah. to where John Lennon was shot. It's, it's, it's quite yeah. chilling, isn't it? Yes. And the two of us went to this bar and we stayed to close the place. I think that's the line where they're talking about yeah. uh, John Lennon. When they find out he died. Yeah. 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 So that was, and I, I really like that song too. It's, it's a beautiful a, song. Yeah. It's a great song. It's a really good song. Do you remember where you were when you found out John Lennon had died? Uh, yeah, but I'd rather not talk about okay. it. Okay. Sure, no, no, no problem. <laughs> so, like, it was with the like a part of my life I've erased. So. Okay, okay, okay. Wow, <laughs> sorry, I asked. Um, <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> um, so when you're playing synths on songs that don't usually have them, like, and there's no synths on the Simon and Garfunkel songs, how did you find a part to play on those songs? Or were there certain songs just like, okay, I'm not you playing anything on this one, but this one, I mean, I like find. the one, the ones, the ones in the in that concert, yeah, yeah, all those songs basically. They were mostly things like they're mostly things like organ parts and um and string parts, so it's just sound kind of organic for 60s and 70s songs, yeah, a little, yeah, yeah. that are really, you know, sometimes it's parts that were actually on the records. Sometimes it's just parts in the style of the records, you know, that's, that's you know, compatible to, with the whole feeling of it. What was your favorite song that you played on that gig? On that one? Well, I don't know, but I mean, some of the ones that I really enjoyed were some of the up-tempo things like Late in the Evening. Late in the Evening was really fun. First thing I remember when you came into my life, said I want to get that girl going. 
Do you have a single favorite memory of that night? I guess it's climbing up to the stage the first time. You know, you, there are something like, it's like a two-story climb up the stairs and back of the stage. And then you come up. I really liked the design of the stage. I thought that was really great. It's like, it looks like an old Brooklyn rooftop <coughs> with the old water towers, you know? Mm-hmm. It was, that was a cool design. I thought it was really good. And getting up there and being up, I was really one of the highest in the air on the other side was a little four-piece horn section they were way up there and i was way up on the on stage left and looking out over the crowd when the crowd had collected and it was just people as far as you could see and there were things like big balloons and people flying kites and stuff like that (laughs) but so it was it was really it was really fun to see that and it was also really beautiful evening as the sun went down there was some beautiful cirrocumulus clouds in the sky over central park and it was just a just a beautiful evening so got lucky with the weather a few weeks later or a month later or something diana ross tried to do the same thing and it was a colossal windstorm and rainstorm in central park yeah, I don't know. If really? No, you can no, probably find pictures, find pictures of it somewhere. Diana Ross sort of tried to do the same thing, and it was she was just about washed off the stage. <laughs> oh dear, blown off the stage. Like yeah, just just bad, really bad luck with the weather. Uh, so um, obviously in 1982, you talk. Do you do you on the tour with Simon and Garfunkel? Were you? No, no. Okay. Never toured with them. Okay. I've hardly ever toured at all, really. Is that a conscious decision in that you prefer the studio? Yes. Or? Yeah, mostly, because I just don't enjoy it. I mean, in the recent years, I've been drawn into it here and there, but uh, it's not, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of retiring from it. I don't want to really do that. Were you asked to be on the Simon Garfunkel tour, or was it something that just... Uh, no, no. No. Would you have done it if asked? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Was there a tour of the, with the two of them? Yes, in 82. Because it was going to lead to them oh, recording. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I'm a, their album together. I'm amazed that they managed to do that without killing each other. I yeah. I don't think they. I, yeah, I think that was when it really started to deteriorate. Was during the tour. And decide why. Hey, I'm Will. And I'm Kat. If you love 1980s pop culture, you'll love 1980s now. Each week we discuss our favorite 1980s media. Like movies, TV shows, music. Yeah, we chat with our favorite 1980s celebrities. Like affirmations with Dee Wallace. And other times, uh, Alex Winter tells us what Bill and Ted's phone booth smells like. But it's always fun. You don't have to miss the 1980s. You can have your 1980s now. You worked with Diana Ross again on Silk Electric, so there's several tracks on there, including one you co-wrote called So Close. It's a really nice kind of doo-wop song. It's a really lovely song. Yeah. Um, It's credited to you, Bill Ray, and Diana Ross. So Diana's not known as a songwriter, so what was exactly was her contribution and how was that song written? We, we, oh boy.
It's only 40 years ago. I'm sure you can remember. Yeah. Like it was well, yesterday, we, also, yeah? we had a bit of a falling out about it, too, because she basically asked me to write a track and handed me, a, and we recorded a, an instrumental track, and she handed me a microphone, and she said, sing what you have in mind, which I, I did. Right. And um, the next thing I heard, the song was done, and she was saying I was not a co-writer, I was only an arranger, which is not really kosher. So we had a bit of a conflict. I mean, it was all settled a long time ago, but things like that happen in the business. So it's basically your melody and you sang them. I don't know that it was really a melody. I can't really remember the song at this point and haven't heard it in decades, but it was my track for sure. Yeah. And ideas for melodies, you know, and nowadays, People start with, I mean, people in the dance music scene will make a track and somebody else will caterwaul over it and they'll at some point kind of cobble together a song and they'll they'll credit 12 writers. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, she was kind of doing that then, but then she was saying, uh, I was only the arranger, even though there was no music at all before I made some. Right. So uh, that's really, there was a, there was a bit of a... Uh, Bit of a bit of a kerfuffle. Yeah, well, I was going to ask this later, actually, about that very thing. When does an arrangement become a writing credit? It's a very, very difficult question. Generally, never, but it probably should. I mean, if if you're really writing a very strong arrangement, you're often creating things that are really instrumental hooks. Yes, exactly. Because the horn arrangement and no, a string arrangement, both of them, they'll, yeah. they'll, be, they'll be central hooks of the song that people remember. Yes. They'll, they'll sing as yeah. melodies. Yeah. Yeah. And if they if they really work and if they really connect with the feeling of the song, and the personality of the song, then they become kind of indispensable features of it. As you say, people can't really imagine the song without them. So it's, you know, that's been a long conversation for a long time. Arrangers tend to walk away with their fees and not really own the any, piece of the product which isn't really right but it's the way it's always been yeah it's a thin line isn't it okay it's still in 82 got a couple of massive albums there's the nightfly donald fagan which always makes the you know top 500 best albums of all time list and that kind of thing yeah um so you worked on several tracks there you did the horn arrangements on all the tracks is that correct and then you played synths on a couple of tracks i believe so because but they don't all have horn arrangements well i mean all the tracks that have horn arrangements i believe so yeah. yeah 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 sure yeah no. What would you say the key difference between the experience working with Steely Dan and working with Donald alone would be? I, I don't think there was much of a difference, except that I never saw Walter. Okay, that's literally the only difference. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I can't think of a difference. I mean, to me, it was very much the same thing. And and on Gaucho too, I, I generally interacted with Donald. I didn't really interact with Walter. I knew him. Because when you listen to The Night Flight, it doesn't sound massively removed from steely down like most solo albums it's like i'm gonna do my own thing that's different from the group i'm with but this this does seem like a continuation of yes. steely down yeah 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 and i think you know with gaucho and with steely down with other stuff uh, you know donald was the main driver of, he he used to say that he really needed walter to help him finish the song that's what he said to me <laughs> uh, okay that's interesting yeah yeah because he could he would start it have an idea and get to a certain point and get stuck yeah. Or he felt he felt stuck, but uh, those are two great records. That's for sure. Do you have a particular favorite track on that album? Uh, Maxine is on Nightfly, isn't it? And also Ruby Baby. Yeah. Yeah.
two favorites of mine. I mean, I have a lot of favorites. It's funny when those records came out for a while, my favorite tracks were the tracks I had nothing to do with because they were fresh to me and I'd never heard them before. So I'd be fascinated with them because I, I you know, was close to the other tracks having worked on them. That's a good point. You're able to judge a song as a song because you're on the inside looking out as opposed to on the outside looking in. So if, how do you get that kind of impartial view of a song's worth when you're so close to it? Well, that's really that's really hard. I mean, the important thing is when you're working on it to be able to step back and experience it as the audience, experience it as someone who's never heard it before, to understand the personality and the, the you know the soul of it and what supports the what supports the song and what is might be meaningless decoration that's always an important challenge my one of my favorites is like at the end of gaucho's third world man yeah and uh i played my old oberheim four voice with donald on that one uh, at the end you hear those these Ober, oberheim chords going in and out on the fade and i was playing the notes and he was playing the mod wheel that opens and closes the the filter so that i always remember doing that that was fun There's some really pretty Oberheim sounds. I used to love that instrument. I don't know what became of it. There's what sort was, of a, what was distinctive about the Oberheim? There's a high. There's a high bell sound in the middle section of Third World Man. We'll see behind those bright eyes by and by when the sidewalks are safe for the little guy. That section. We'll see behind those ping, ping, and then dung, 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 dung. The chromatic line. There's a very pretty bell sound that we made on that Oberheim. It's just it's a unique sound. You could get like really unique sounds from that instrument. very very analog and very this the funny thing is the oscillators were so unsteady if you breathed on them they'd go out of tune <laughs> and and they they felt like they were ready to go out of tune at any time but it was very just very analog and it was these pretty sounds that would just melt into the track they were they were like butter melting into a track anyway and i love that song such a good song. Also, by the way, one of the greatest recorded guitar solos ever on anything. I, I think it's Larry Carlton. Uh, and it was probably punched together a time or two. So how many takes would that have been to get that guitar solo? I don't know. I don't know. I did the piano solo on uh, Glamour Profession, and that took, that was, that's only, I think, two punches. It took about three hours. 
to oh, do that. Bad, then. Yeah. To do that 12 bar piano solo. Okay, that's not bad. Three hours. It's not bad. It is bad. Were you there when Mark Knopfler played for seven hours on no. Time Out of Mind? You weren't there because no. he played for seven hours and they used 40 seconds. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, wow. <laughs> no, I wasn't around for that. that okay. Also, I, I was going to say, um, of all the accolades and Grammy nominations that the Nightfly got, I think the best accolade it got was from 2010 when Vatican City's newspaper selected it as one of its official top 10 albums. So it's got the papal seal of approval, so... Wow. That's, that's got to count for something, yeah? Nightfly? The Nightfly, Night- yeah. Wow. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yes, the Vatican. I wonder if Donald knows. I would love to be the one to tell him that. <laughs> when was the last time you spoke I, to him? I, it, it, years ago. I, I would love to talk to him, actually. I've got to tr- see if I can dig him up. But, um, you know, I'm sure a, a nice Jewish boy from New Jersey would be really thrilled to be honored by the Pope. <laughs> you know, a lot to him. Absolutely. Um, and also in 82, one of my favorite albums of all time, The Nylon Curtain, Billy Joel. I know you're credited on Scandinavian Skies. You mentioned screaming stuff. Where's the orchestra. So did you work on Where's the Orchestra? No, no, I yeah, didn't okay. work on that song. I don't know. I remember doing a bunch of little synthesizer sounds, but I can't remember on which ones. I, I may be exaggerating. Maybe, I, maybe it was only a few songs. Okay. But do you remember working on Scandinavian Skies? I'm not sure, actually. I remember hearing it. So when you're working on somebody who's a well-known pianist and keyboard player, is that is that an added pressure for you as a keyboard player? No. You didn't feel like, is he going to be looking at what I'm doing? No, no. He, 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 he wasn't doing that. It was more about finding some really interesting sounds for the track, you know, and adding, adding sort of color and personality to the track. And I'm sure he knew I would play it okay. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't his uh, turf. You're right, yeah. And... Uh, I sure can't write songs the way he does. I wish I could. Yes, yeah, brilliant album. 1983. So going to 83, you, you said about Innocent Man, you don't think you, you worked on that? No, I don't think so. I think so. Okay. I'm not aware of, of that. Somewhere in there was, was Michael Frank's Passion Fruit. Yes, oh, I was going to get to that, which is your first producer credit, yeah? Yes, that's the so, first record I ever produced. So how did I, that come about? 
Well, I had worked with Michael on the previous album, which was a record called Objects of Desire. And I had just done some playing and some, a few little arrangements. I don't really remember what I did, but I, you know, kind of connected with Michael musically. And then uh, Michael called me and he said, uh, would, you, uh, would you like to produce my next album? And I was really shocked because I'd never produced anything and I didn't know exactly what that meant. And I, you know, said, are you sure? I mean, can I even do this? I've never done this before. He said, yeah, I want you to do it. So uh, we did that. And I, I still really enjoy that record. I mean, I think it stands up really well. Most of it is uh, some really good songs by Michael. You, you're the quiet, shy type. You always whisper, never shouting. Tell me all about it I got ways to make you Make you tell me all about it That's what I'm gonna do Make you tell me all about it Making love till you do Till you tell me all about it I've, I've spoken to a lot of engineers that then became producers, and that seems like a natural kind of progression from engineer to yeah. producer. But to go from like musician, arranger to producer, is that a big leap? Or did it feel like a natural progression no, to you? I don't think so. I mean, most record producers might come from being engineers, but some are, you know, I, I'm, I am more from the arranger side and the music side. So I hire the engineers. I'm really not an engineer to speak of at all. So yeah, I guess it's a little more unusual for the producers to come from the music side, but there's no reason why they can't. And then there are some teams where, you know, their production team is one guy is more the arranger and the other guy's more the engineer. But from my point of view, if, if I'm if I'm producing, I'm arranging. I don't hire other arrangers, but I hire all the engineers. <laughs> what did you find? hardest about producing i mean was it daunting with the first day you were okay I'm, I'm the producer i'm in control of the session now um no it was okay i mean most of this most of the uh musicians were already friends of mine and i had worked with them on all kinds of other stuff where someone else was producing so it, it wasn't really that different you know i'd say the producer of an artist has to really has to really go to where the artist lives musically right uh and has to really understand what they're about I, that sounds obvious but it's it's a challenge it's it's a challenge as an arranger too i mean i'm hired as an arranger all the time and it's just i think really important to get inside the musical world of other people and then work there as if you really live there you can't sound like a tourist. So is that a case of just listening to their previous records to get a sense of who they are and where they came from? Sure, that would, yeah, that's a big part of it. But it helps just to, um, you know, a, a few years ago, we, Jay Newland and I, a great engineer, we co-produced a swinging big band Christmas record for Nashville artist uh, named Brett Eldridge. Uh, and we just, another one, they're very successful for him. And I love that. I love that music. It's like the, the uh, you know, classic swing music but 
we were going to start doing the project before we had even met the the guy, met the artist, the performer. And I'm 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 proud to say, in retrospect, I I talked to everyone and I insisted on we should meet him in person. The next day, he was on a plane coming up from Nashville, and the three of us spent the day together just singing through things, playing and singing and listening to to stuff on Spotify or whatever, and that made all the difference in the world to me. To know him personally, to get a feeling of how he connected to that material and how he connected to that style and the stuff that he especially liked and the way that he did it. He's a, he's a wonderful singer, wonderful performer. critical to, to be in the same room with him i can't imagine you know jumping into this project never meeting him mm-hmm. but i that's that happens i guess at times i mean people just make this these prefab sort of tracks and then the artist has to come and just fit in but that's not how it should work really again that's the modern style isn't it and that's why everything kind of sounds yeah sometimes generic and samey i know it is i know it is sometimes i think it was quincy jones who said you know the real trick as an arranger is not to just to write a good arrangement song sing the real trick is to write the right arrangement for that performer right of that song that's the real challenge you're not just supporting a good song you know you're part of the connection between the song and the performer and you're supporting the you're supporting the performer's whole personality and that's that's a big challenge you know so when you say what's difficult about producing, I guess it's the same challenge. It's, you know, how do you really understand the musical country where someone else lives and go there and live, you know, go there and live with them for a while <laughs> and, and really ex- help them express it. Yeah, it's really nicely put. Go to where the artist lives musically. I like that have to be able to feel what they feel when they feel it. And that's not, uh, it's not something that everybody can do. It's not something that everybody understands is important. Am I making any sense? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. That does make sense. Yeah. You know, it's quite a trick that they, they might have a little, very small band, two, three piece band in front of a symphony orchestra and the symphony orchestra needs to be there for a reason too. They need to be there and expressing stuff that's, kind of from symphony orchestra world, but they also need to really harmonize uh, artistically with the stars and support them with the right feeling. And that's very tricky. It's very tricky. But when it works, it's such a wonderful experience. Okay, still in 83, an album that I've discovered in the last year or so that I've become kind of semi-obsessed with, and that's Hearts and Bones, Paul Simon. Ah, yeah. Which I think is his best solo album, personally. Yeah. I think it's absolutely beautiful, full of, full of beautiful songs. Now, I, I checked the inner sleeve to the album to see which songs you're credited on, and you're credited as synths on allergies and vocoder on song, song about the moon, but I assume that's the wrong way around because... 
I can hear the vocoder at the beginning of Allergies. Allergies to dust and grain Maladies, remedies Still these allergies remain But I don't hear one on song about the moon. So is is that huh. incorrect? I don't know. I'll have to listen to that little yeah. self-contained vocoder for a while. And I was people, people were wanting to have it overdubbed on their tracks. Right. And I would just sort of make kind of chordal parts and sort of vowel sounds, you know, mostly. I mean, it wasn't words. It was an odd thing. I, so yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know about that. I like that record. I like that album. Was it just those two songs you worked on, or were, were there others that you were uh, As far as I know, I mean, I, if that's what the credits say, I don't, I, don't have any, I don't have any reason to think that the credits are wrong. Write a song about the moon. You want to write a song about the moon. You want to write a spiritual tune. So you're saying that you were there with Paul listening to the late great Johnny Ace. Yeah, that's probably when it was then. Right. Because it was after that concert. So you weren't there when Art was there recording vocals with Paul? No, 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 no. Is that record, does that record have the song um, uh, Renee and Georgette? Yes, Greek? yes. Yeah, I really like that song. Well, I, for a minute, I was going to do the, a, string, a string arrangement on that, but it, the gig went to uh, Phil, Phil Glass instead. I had high hopes of working on that song. And I remember listening to the song with Paul and saying, is it a photograph? And it, and it is. And Paul said, isn't that interesting? Nobody else has ever asked me that. <laughs> but, you know, from the title of the song, it sounds like the title of a photograph. And it is a photograph, actually. It's the, it is a real photograph. Renee and George and McGreed with their dog after the We're dining with the power elite and they looked in their bedroom. hidden away in the cabinet cold of their hearts the penguins the moon glows the orioles and the five satins for now and ever after as it was before Renee and George and Magritte with their dog after the war But anyway, I didn't get to work on the song, unfortunately. So, do you have any memories about working on those sessions you did work on? It was with, with Russ Teitelman again, and uh, I don't know, I... I remember it being kind of slow going and a little frustrating, and I'm not sure why. I, maybe Paul and Russ were having a little difficulties communicating. I don't know. 
was, was so long ago. So I could be completely wrong about that. Okay. That's cool. It's a beautiful album. I recommend anybody anybody listening to listen to that album. Yeah, uh, you know, Paul has made has made his own albums. He's continued to make his own albums in recent years, and they're really great. They're wonderful. I mean, it, he's a real poet. It, he's doing it as well as ever. Mounds is must-haves. Okay, so um, what was your favorite film of the ages? I have to go with Akira Kurosawa and Ron. Second person to choose that film. Really? Yeah. It's a fantastic picture. Excellent. Your favorite TV program or series? Oh, God. I don't know. I can, I'm not sure I can answer that because I didn't really watch TV. I was too, too busy. busy. Yeah, too busy. Working. A, a common and being, answer. And being aware of MTV, which doesn't really count. So how often would you watch MTV to, to check what was going on, what was contemporary, what was happening? When it first started, it was of a lot of interest because it was obviously a huge um, promotional tool for records. And uh, I do remember when those first Michael Jackson, well, like when the Michael Jackson thriller video came out with that dancing, the big, big group unison dancing. That was, I mean, that's everywhere now, but that was the first time that was really done. So that made a huge splash. Okay, favorite book of the 80s? I assume you don't have much time to read either. Well, I'm a, I'm a very big literary fiction fan, as it happens. But my favorites are, are, I was looking them up, they're not really from the 80s. My, my all-time favorite is The Unconsoled by Kazuo Ishiguro, but that's, that was published in the 90s. Okay. There is something that was published in 1980 that's one of the greatest comic novels of all time, and that's um, A Confederacy of Dunces uh, by yes. John Kennedy Toole, okay. which is one of the funniest things you'll ever read in your life. And it's um, a sad story, though, because he struggled to get it published and could not get arrested, and he actually uh, committed suicide. It was very sad. He was discouraged about not getting his book published, and his mother kept trying and finally got his novel published and it became this big hit and it became a, a, criti a critical success and a popular success too. Um, and if you haven't read it, I, I uh, strongly recommend it because it's very, very funny. Wait, just a moment, Ignatius said. He couldn't permit this opportunity to slip through his swollen fingers. Have you people considered forming a political party and running a candidate? Politics? Oh, made of Orleans. How dreary. This is very important, Ignatius shouted worriedly. He would show Myrna how to inject sex into politics. You must start a party organization. Plans must be made. Oh, please, the young man sighed. All this man's talk is making my mind real. I'm afraid I'll have to be running along. It's costume time. Excellent. Your favorite LP of the 80s? It, uh, I'm not, I don't know. It might, <laughs> it might be Asia. It could be Asia. Asia would be a good choice. Asia's a really wonderful record. And has one of my favorite um, songs of theirs, Home at Last. That'd be 70s, though, wouldn't it, Asia? Is it? No. Well, it was right around 1980. Well, okay. Jeez, uh, well, that's not good. <laughs> that doesn't qualify in that case. I thought it was 1980. Welcome to 70sography. 77. 70? Wow, really? That's yeah, it's the, it's the album before, wasn't it? Wow. So Gaucho came out in 1980. Asia was 877. Gaucho was 1980? Yeah. I thought it was more like 82. No, no, no. Wow. Okay. Oh, geez. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Uh, favorite live event attended in the 80s? I, I 
I can't answer that one either because I didn't really attend live events to speak of unless I was part of them. Okay, so we could count the Simon and Garfunkel in Central Park, couldn't we? I said, well, <laughs> I so it hardly counts because I was part of it. You were working at the time, yeah. What about, uh, going back to LPs, what about uh, James Taylor, Gorilla? Does that qualify? That was done by my, my old friend. That's seven, uh, 75, yeah. Oh, geez, yeah. that long. Yeah, all right. Were you not a big fan of 80s music generally? Would you say just like it's not really a decade? That... Well, I, I maybe not because no. uh, for one thing, I was really part of it. And, and it's, it, unfortunately, when you've really taken part in how the, the sausage is made, so to speak, <laughs> you don't experience it the same way. Yeah, no, that's understandable. I mean, there were some strange things that I did enjoy. Um, Genius of Love by the Tom Tom Club. I kind of liked the goofy song. It was yes. so like funny and peculiar. Kev, is my next set question then, like song you wish you had worked on? Is there one song of know, the 80s? Um, anything, anything by Peter Gabriel. Oh, okay, that's, that's a good answer. A real fan. I, I've never met him or worked with him. Um, I love Sledgehammer. Yes. I remember the famous Sledgehammer MTV video, which was really fun. Yeah, I'm a fan. Would, would you have done anything different with that horn arrangement when you, when you listen to it? Mm-hmm. Do you think I would have done this slightly different? Uh... No, probably not. Um, I don't remember the horn range that well. I I guess I have some of that like snarling kind of Stevie Wonder stuff, like kind of stuff. I can't remember. I have to listen to it again. End of part one of the interview. Thanks. So that was the first half of the interview with Rob. Uh, really interesting chat and, and very talented guy what an amazing artist he's worked with you can check out uh, Rob at robmancy.com you can find his definitive discography kind of relieved I only had the 80s to focus on because there's so much stuff there uh, I have to admit I had never heard of Michael Franks uh, before I did my research for the interview and uh, I didn't really check him out prior to the interview and all that much after but during the editing I have listened to the albums that Rob made with him in the 80s and um, I really started to enjoy them. Soft and gentle and floats like a feather on a breezy summer's day but I don't like it so I'm going to end with a track of the 1983 LP Passion Fruit produced by Rob and this is called Never Satisfied Meh. So slip into this mellow groove and I will see you on the other side Goodbye Inside a candy store, sensation, temptation Always gotta have some more You love that sticky stuff Ain't a way you let go You tease me, you squeeze me Well, there's something you should know I never get enough I know I'm never I know I'm never 
star We should thank the stars above We're made it, we're made it Happy prisoners of love We now I, I could, there's so much stuff that I'm glad I, I had to there's so much stuff that I'm glad I, I had to oh, so much stuff that I'm glad that I could focus on just the 80s because it's oh, kind of relieved I only had the 80s to focus on because there's so much stuff there wash your hands in dreams and lightning cut off your hair and wherever is frightening I am a div. <laughs> <laughs> 